Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 20th, 2023, President's Day in the United States, a day we're supposed to remember, or Americans are supposed to remember their presidents. I'm not sure whether just the great ones or the less great ones. Jimmy Carter is dying. He's one of the less great ones, but perhaps uh, in his own way, uh, uh, an inspiring man. Um, we've been doing a lot of shows about remembering. Uh, we did one uh, last week uh, with Wojciech uh, Soswicza, um, the director general of the Auschwitz-Birkenau uh, Memorial Foundation about how we should remember perhaps the greatest injustice in history and great crimes against humanity that the Nazis committed in their concentration camps, in their death camps. But of course, every culture has profound moral blots, and we're going to be talking about Americas today when it comes to the history of slavery. Some of you will be familiar with the history of the last slave ship, uh, Clotilda, uh, at least the last known slave ship that supposedly arrived in Mobile Bay in, uh, in Alabama uh, in on July the 9th, uh, 1860. This was memorialized in part in Zora Neale Hurston's great book, uh, Barracoon. And there's a new book out. Uh, it's out tomorrow, but you can get it today called Africa Town, America's Last Slave Ship and the Community It Created by my guest, Nick Tabor, a New York City-based journalist. Nick, uh, welcome and congratulations on the book. Uh, I, uh, is this book an, an, uh, an attempt to get into the business of memorializing, uh, the great crime of slavery? Is it one way of, of trying to remember what happened for you? It's a major project for you. It's your first book. Uh, it, it is a major project. <laughs> Certainly, uh, this remembrance is a component of it. Um, the book does go into detail about um, like the, the transatlantic slave trade in general, the context of the last, the last slave voyage. Uh, but it's also an attempt to trace um, the, like the lines between slavery and the present day, um, to examine how, uh, like what happened in 1860 and, and, and later on and during reconstruction and the Jim Crow era, how it, how it still affects, um, this community in Mobile that was established by the people who were on the ship. Uh, the community persists and, and some of the residents are direct descendants uh, it's it's quite an incredible historical treasure. We don't have any other community in the U.S. that was created by West Africans who had personally survived the Middle Passage, uh, but for decades, instead of treating it as this historical treasure, um, the power elites in Alabama have sort of treated it as an industrial dumping ground. It's the the community is surrounded by heavy industry and it's experienced lots of pollution and many of the residents think there's a cancer epidemic now. So the, the point so, of the book is- uh, well, Yeah, so we'll, we're gonna get onto that. But uh, Nick, let's not, m most of our audience, I'm guessing are probably 
even if they uh, even if they've read Barracoon, um, are not going to be that familiar with the history of Africa Town. So, uh, and of course, there is a, a Wikipedia entry, as there is for most things. Uh, tell us a little bit about Africa Town when it was founded, uh, and why indeed it was called, or is it called Africa Town? Yeah, happy to. This community was founded, as I say, by the the survivors of this last slave voyage. So they arrived in 1860 and they were freed just five years later at the end of the Civil War. And they wanted to go back to West Africa, but they had no way of doing that. They, they couldn't really have even explained, you know, pointed to a map and explained exactly where they were from. And they didn't have the means uh, at any rate. So they created this community where they were able to uh, speak their own languages, mostly Yoruba and appoint their own leaders. Uh, they, they purchased land and built their own houses. This was all in uh, late 1860s, early 1870s uh, during, during Reconstruction. And it, it became known as African Town, two words. Um, later on in the, in the 20th century, that, that name sort of fell out of use. And then it was brought back starting in the 70s and condensed into just one word. Uh, Africa town. It kind of reminds me, and we, we did a show last year with a historian who's written about a Hasidic town in, 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 in New York state, um, where some Jews from East Central Europe came over and uh, maintained all their traditions and rejected every aspect of modernity. I'm guessing that these Africans who came on the last slave ship from the kingdom of Dahomey faced the same kind of dilemma, although I, I guess given the history of racism, it's a, it's a much more painful dilemma of whether to integrate or become American, whatever that meant for uh, black people in, in, in Alabama in, in the 1860s and 70s, or maintain all their traditions. Was there a, a debate within the community of people who looked at this differently? That's a great question. There was there was definitely a sort of a give and take with the the American born um, b black people that they met here. Um, some of them adapted pretty regular or pretty pretty readily to Christianity. Uh, I think that would be the like the clearest example that we have of this, where um, some of them found that. Uh, I, I, it seems as if they didn't feel like they were, they were changing religions altogether. It was, it was like a new vocabulary for them. Um, they felt like it added more context to the understanding that they already had of, of God and the deity. But there were others within the group who it's, it's quite clear from, from the limited evidence that we have that they did not um, convert, that they, um, that, that they, remain faithful to whichever religions they practice in West Africa and those varied among them. Um, there were, they faced a great uh, deal of stigma from, from American born um, and enslaved people. They were, um, they were, you know, when they were on the plantation during the civil war, they were, they were mocked relentlessly. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's clear from, from the interviews that they gave later on to this, they, they were really wounded by this, but um, they, 
you know, they did hold on to these to a lot of their traditions, nevertheless, um, some of which. So, were, so they, they were marked by the American born slaves, black slaves. Mm -hmm. What for being African, for not being American, for being uh, from another world. I mean, it's ironic mm -hmm. given the history of slavery. Yeah. Yeah. For having this, you know, dark skin, for speaking a different language, uh, not knowing English for, and for having rituals, um, community, you know, practices that, that seem very strange to, to the black people. It's kind of like a time walk, as you say, um, this was the last slave ship that arrived. Uh, the, slavery was supposedly banned for since the beginning of the 19th century. I, 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 how many ships actually got through in the first 60 years of, of the 19th century? You know, I, I forget how many it was, but we know that, um, I mean, I, I want to say a couple dozen, but, um, but we know that the, although it's, you know, there, so there were ships like the Clotilda that brought, you know, more than a hundred people over. And then there were, there were a lot of them, it seems that just made these brief runs like, like through the West Indies that would drop off maybe a handful of captives in like, you know, a place like Galveston or, or Mobile or New Orleans um, that were not full fledged voyages all the way from, from West Africa. Um, and we know that, that just about every president uh, from, from 1808 on 1808 is when the it became illegal to import people from from Africa. Just about every president um, from then up to the Civil War pardoned uh, slavers, or or at least um, you know at least at least turned a blind eye. Yeah, so it's an important lesson to learn on President's Day. Certainly one of the great True. lots. Um, you you dedicated, as I said, a number of years to this. You went to live in Mobile. I mean, your project's obviously different from um, from uh, Zora Neale Hurston. When she went, she went to talk, uh, in particular, to a man called Kujo Kazula Lewis, and who she immortalized in her book. Who did you talk to? What did you do for this project? Yeah, good question. When I started on it. Um... My first, I, so I, I was looking for the descendants of Kudjo Lewis. This was actually when Barracoon came out. I was at New York Magazine and we were running an excerpt of Barracoon. And um, my editor said it would be great if we could find out what happened to Kudjo's descendants and have a story about them. I spoke well, I to- I started to jump in here, um, uh, Nick, and excuse the dimness of this question. My question is a general dim. Um, why, why did it take so long to publish Barracoon? Yeah, good. that's a, another good question. It, Hurston finished it around 1928 or 29, and um, she shopped it around with, with several publishers. And what she told her, her patron, uh, a woman named Charlotte Mason, was that um, these publishers just... So Hurston wanted to render it in what she called dialect. She she rendered it phonetically so that it it, it conveys the sound of Kajo speaking, uh, and I, I think very accurately um, from what we can tell. Uh, she said that that these publishers insisted that she either take it out of dialect, just render it in like conventional plain English, 
um, or they, or they wouldn't publish it. They said that that um, you know large audiences weren't going to read dialect. Um, there, I have to say, there is some evidence that at least one publisher, Viking, was quite interested in publishing it in dialect, and Hurston. Um, Hurston's agent said that she wanted to make considerable revisions and she never, she never got around. To okay. That. So the book, right. So, so let's go back to the magazine piece. Uh, the mm-hmm. book came out, it was celebrated and it was book of the year in 2018 and a number of publications, mm-hmm. uh, 50 years or 80 years too late, but I guess better late than never. And then, and then you were intrigued. So your yours is in a, in a way, sort of an updated version of Barracoon 80 years later. Is that fair? I think that is fair. Um, I, I eventually did find uh, one of Kajo's descendants, a guy named Gary Lumbers. And when I got him on the phone the first time, he told me pretty forcefully, you don't need to be writing about the descendants. You should be writing about the neighborhood. He said, when I grew up there, it, it, it was this thriving place. And now he said, it looks like a war zone. Um, like, the, the population is much smaller. Um, it's there's a highway running through the center of town, and um, and I, I I visited there and, and it left a, a, a stark impression on me. And I, I kept thinking I wish I could just move down and and piece together the whole history of this place from 1860 to now and figure out how it got to be the way it is and how it got singled out to bear the brunt of all this pollution. It sounds um, to me like. It sort of it brings the two most catastrophic elements of American history together. Obviously, the history of slavery and racism, and then of the environment and inequality. Is that fair? I think so. Yeah. I, um, I plus deregulation right. and neoliberalism and all the rest of it. Exactly, and shows the connections between them. That's the hope. So, 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 talk more about that. Um, this this place that, in a sense, time forgot. It was off the map, quite literally. I'm guessing in some ways, wasn't it? Yeah, that's that's essentially true. You know, the so it was outside the city limits of Mobile. Um, there was a period around the turn of the 20th century. You know, we think of as the the progressive era. It was also the beginning of the Jim Crow era. And um, I really find this to be a decisive time in the, in the city's history uh, or in the, the neighborhood's history. It, um, the, the city was like establishing, was, it was paving roads, it was installing sewers and plumbing. It, you know, it set up a waterwork system so that people would have clean water for the first time. It was establishing fire departments, all of these, these you know, basic municipal services we take for granted, but it was, it was pretty much just bringing those to the edges of the white neighborhoods and leaving these black neighborhoods um, to languish effectively in the 19th century. And so these diseases persisted in black neighborhoods after they were eradicated in, in the rest of Mobile. And um, eventually some of these services did get extended to the black neighborhoods, but Africatown remained outside the city limits and the, the white elites were reluctant to annex they wanted to. They wanted the city to grow. They wanted a bigger population. They felt like Mobile was falling behind the other southern cities. But at the same time, they didn't want to annex this era. This area that was that was heavily black. They wanted it to be a majority white city. Um, and so, so yeah, it, it really 
it is pretty accurate, I think, to say that time forgot this place. Um, for, Dylan, for, for, yeah, Dylan, of course, wrote his great Memphis Blues song, uh, Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues. Uh, well, yeah. It's just such a, it's such an astonishingly depressing story. I mean, is there anything about it that is in any way encouraging? There's, there's quite a lot. Um, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Yeah, they, um, I mean, you find all the way through, you find this tradition of, of, of resistance and resilience. Um, it's like around 1910, this community established a school that became by, by some reports from the time, like probably the best African-American school on the Gulf Coast, at least to that side of New Orleans. Um, and it, it remained a great school for decades. And um, so, so that's one example, but, but you know, now in the 21st century, you have these people who, uh, some who live in the neighborhood, some who grew up there and have moved out, um, some who are just, just friends of the neighborhood, trying to transform the place into a destination for heritage tourism. You know, they always point to this, this famous museum in Montgomery um, that Brian Stevenson's group has created. Right, the uh, the Legacy Museum. Exactly, which in its first year open brought, I think, more than a billion dollars in economic activity to the city of Montgomery. So they well, always... It, uh, and a very, uh, I went to a, an event this weekend, actually, um, uh, featuring a, a previous guest on the show uh, who's written a history of uh, African-Americans and he talked about going to the, the museum in Montgomery being one of the transformative moments. I haven't actually been to the museum. I need to go. But uh, yeah, so so it's more than just bringing tourists. I mean, it's it's, it's an important cultural place. Right. It's I mean, that, you know, like they're they're realistic people. They're they're very savvy and they know that that. Um, you know, for certain purposes, like to achieve their ends, they have to talk in those terms. They have to tell like the, the power brokers in Mobile, like, look, there are, um, this isn't just an act of charity. You can, this, this will actually be an engine for, for, for economic growth. But, um, but that's not really the point. The point is to, is to preserve the place because it is this, this extraordinary treasure. What's it like there, um, Nick? Is it, I mean, leaving us on, I want to get to the, the pollution elements later, mm -hmm. but, um, is it has the original community been built over? Is it all concrete and stone, or, or or is there some authenticity still, if that's the right word, to this community created in the 1960s by the last slaves who came to America? Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have uh, any of the original houses built by the shipmates anymore. Those were a lot of those were actually destroyed as recently as the 1980s. Uh, a highway was was uh, built through, and, and they were destroyed for that. Um, it, that that's that's surprise, a pretty shocking story, right? detail in the book. But um, but when we do have a cemetery there that was that that's that where many of the the survivors of the last slave ship are interred. Uh, the church that they established is still intact, and many of the people who attend are are direct descendants, and. And it's not as if, um, I mean, in, in some ways you could say it's a modern community. It, it does have all this, as I say, this industry surrounding it, but it also has, um, 
I mean, it has a lot of shotgun houses that have, um, you know, I guess a kind of beauty of their own. And it's still, there's still an element, I think of like, of like wildness too, where you're still close to these, to these creeks and rivers and bayous and, and forests. And, um, you, you really can get a sense, um, you know, you, you can still get a sense of what, of what it might've looked like when, when these enslaved people settled there in the 1860s. Um, I mean, there's an area called Hog Bayou. Unfortunately, there's a power plant there now, but the lore is that, is that, um, this is where the West Africans hunted for hogs. <laughs> this was, this was how they, this was how they, they fed themselves. And, um, and it's, it's, but parts of it are still quite lush and quite beautiful. Um, Nick, how receptive both then and now were the people of Africa town to um, ideologies of people like Marcus Garvey, who uh, idealized the, the notion of return or of Africanness? Yeah, I would say there's not, I haven't detected a lot of um, like a strong spirit of, you know, black nationalism in the neighborhood. Um, they've, um, there's, there's been a general tendency to integrate, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, especially since the, the second generation, the children of the, the enslaved people came over, they, you know, in, like pretty quickly, they were going to school with, with, um, the children of people who were born here. And, um, you know, they, they, um, they intermarried. They they had jobs in in, in America. Are there whites living America. in Africa Town now? Not really. No, no. It's it's. Um, what do you mean? Not really. I, I don't. I don't. I don't know of any. <laughs> I'm going to say no. Um, Are there other uh, immigrants to America? Latino people. I know there's a large communities now of Asians. We did a show and about some Vietnamese who settled on the on the Gulf Coast uh, of Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Vietnamese in New Orleans as well, where I where I lived um, for a while after I finished my first draft of this book. Uh, if there are any, if there are any, if there's anyone living in the neighborhood who's not African American, I would be surprised, and I I haven't met them. I can't say definitively, but I don't think so. So let's talk about one of the. I mean, it's, the whole story is pretty disturbing, but the the pollution story. I mean, is is as if. You know, Delilah or something was was writing this uh, with with this ending of pollution. How badly polluted is it, um, and how different is is that from the rest of America, which also many poor communities in America, which are blighted with one kind or another of industrial chemical pollution. Yeah, it's 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 magnified there. Um, you know, it's not unusual for for communities of color to bear the brunt of this stuff. Uh, I would say this is sort of a classic example of that. Um, it's so for, for decades, there were two paper factories kind of bookending the neighborhood, you know, on either side. And they brought lots of jobs, uh, thousands of jobs and, and they were pretty good paying jobs. And in fact, they were even union jobs, which was rare in the South. So people were grateful for them, but at the same time, they were just like filling the creeks with, with, you know, untreated wastewater and the people in Africa town, a lot of them were poor and fishing was a big part of how they, they fed their families. And 
people have told me, so like the federal government came in and did some tests on the water in the 60s and they put baskets of bluegills in the creeks and they found that within a couple hours, all the fish died. Oh, um, and, and people, um, you know, but they never posted signs or anything saying don't, don't fish in these, in these, you know, rivers and eat and eat the fish. Um, people have told me that they would sometimes, uh, like bring fish home and they would be, they, some of them, you know, maybe one out of 10 or one out of five would be like black on the inside when they filleted them. And usually they would throw those ones out, but, but, um, they, they said, well, some, some weeks we didn't catch enough and we just had to eat those ones. Um, and, and they're, they're kind of haunted by those memories now. Um, more than haunted, I would assume that the medical consequences are also tragic. They are. If you, if you just walk around in Africa town, um, and you know, if you find people who are in the mood to talk, they'll, and just about anyone can rattle off a list of, of family members who have died from cancer. Um, it's, I mean, much more, I think, than, than like I could in my family. It seems like it's, it's, I mean, I know a family who, um, a brother and sister who have each survived cancer and, and just about everyone else in their family died from it. Um, so it, it, it seems anecdotally, it seems like the, the rates are just off the charts. Um, I mean, this ash used to blow in from the paper mills and, um, and it would like, it, people's cars would rust within a couple of years if they didn't wash them constantly. This ash would eat through the shingles on their roofs and um, so they were always breathing that air. So then they didn't think as much of it at the time, but you know, again, they're, they're haunted by it now. The paper mills are gone, but there's, there are many other factories surrounding it. I mean, you, you kind of have to drive through um, like industrial property to get in or out of the neighborhood for the most part, um, and the oldest part of Africa Town, uh, which is called Lewis Quarters, is um, to get to get to it. You have to drive through the property of a of a lumber company, which um, up until a few years ago belonged to the the family of the the person who's now the mayor of the city. How much support, Nick, do you think there would be within the community to turn it not into a museum, but to really, as we talked earlier? transforming it into a place too in which we remember this this terrible crime of slavery and of transporting people in the middle kingdom from africa to america it, there seems to be quite a lot of support um because the you know, the, the state and the i mean a lot of this a lot of this activism is coming from people in the community people from the community um and it, it's it, the way it's taking shape. Um, it looks as if this, if this project is successful, then um, people from Africa Town will be kind of at the helm. They'll be in in um, positions to make decisions about about how it goes. Um, so I think there's quite a lot of optimism. About uh, is there uh, are there formal initiatives? Um, the Auschwitz Birkenau Memorial Foundation. Uh, uh it's it's credo is together we will preserve memory you mentioned the new museum the legacy museum uh created by brian stevenson in montgomery which is also about remembering of course mm -hmm. there's the incredible museum the smithsonian national museum of african-american history and culture in washington dc which is also in the business of remembering um what kind of place i mean if you could 
close your eyes and snap your finger, what kind of place do you think would do justice to this so that we and future generations can remember what exactly happened at Africatown? Mm. Well, um, the first thing I should mention is that the, the wreckage of the ship itself um, has been identified in the Mobile Delta. And uh, there's, there's a debate about whether it's going to be dredged up or not. Um, I, I, as I understand right now, um, archaeologists and, and other experts are assessing whether that would even be possible. Uh, if, it, if it could, it would be quite an expensive project. But um, I, I think at a minimum, it's likely that we're going to see uh, boat tours, um, might even be tours on a, on a ship that was similar to the Clotilda out to that site um, with, with narration about what happened. One of the archaeologists, Kamau Siddiqui, a black diver, always says that there's power in the place itself. And he thinks that keeping it in the delta is a good um, approach. And so I think that would be appropriate. That would be a really good way to help people visualize what happened um, that night in 1860. Um, I also, there's, there's an effort, like there's a, a museum um, that will be opening later this year. Um, that, that I have high hopes for. Um, uh, but, and there's, there are, there is a lot of talk about people from the community, um, establishing, um, like a, uh, a, a tour program within the neighborhood where they'll talk about their ancestors, talk about, um, talk about the early sites that were important in the, um, the founding of Africa town. Uh, but apart from that, I, you know, I, I think that it, like it's, we don't want it to become just like a, like a fossil or a relic. We don't want it. I, I don't think we want it to look, it, the, the, the hope is not just to have it, to turn it into something like colonial Williamsburg. Like it's still, a, it's still a place where people live and, and where kids go to school. And, and, um, the, the hope is that is the hope is to keep that alive too. And, um, to, to build more housing there and, and to, to improve the school. And, of course, to address the question of, of pollution. Yes, absolutely. Uh, finally, Nick, I, I'm guessing that this has a lot of political uh, <laughs> complexity, controversy in Alabama itself, which, of course, is a Republican-run state, one of the most conservative states in the country. What about the quote unquote the the white establishment especially the the white republican establishment in alabama the governor the the senators um are they in any way sympathetic to this or they want it to just sort of disappear and have no interest in any commemoration of what happened good question you know i find that um in a place like alabama especially in a place like mobile it unfortunately I guess it, it does make sense to talk about like a white establishment because it's, it's quite a segregated city. Um, I mean, as, as I said, I spent time in new Orleans and, and um, new Orleans uh, people complain about segregation there. And I, I understand why, but it's, it's much starker in mobile. Uh, I have to say that the state has, um, it, it, it seems like, it seems to me the state has done a decent job, certainly on the archeology span side, with the ship being identified that the state has, has done a very responsible job so far of keeping the community informed and 
keeping its interests um, at the forefront. Um, so I'm optimistic about how, how that'll go from, from the state side. At, on the city level, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, they say a lot of the right things, um, but quite a few people in the community and, and who work with the community have, um, feel unsatisfied. They feel like all they're getting is lip service. Um, so, um, but the city is involved in this museum that's being, that's going to open later this year. So uh, we'll, we'll see how things go.